Istanbul, 1957. James Jimmy Mellart was the type of archaeologist you'd associate with Indiana Jones, at least in demeanor. A thickly built, spectacled British man, almost every photo you see of Mellart shows him with a cunning smile and a cigar wedged between his fingers. Friends and associates often described him as amiable, but complicated. In 1956, Mellart traveled to Turkey with the lofty goal of uncovering the secrets of the ancient, and I mean very ancient, world. You see, Mellert had been obsessed with classical history at a young age, having come from a family of art and history enthusiasts. But above all ancient unsolved mysteries, it was the identity of an unknown, plundering civilization referred to as the Sea Peoples that drew Mellert to Anatolia. All throughout ancient Mediterranean civilization, including the Greeks and the Egyptians, there were frightening accounts of an unstoppable race of invaders who laid waste to the ancient world before vanishing into the sands of time, leaving behind nothing but ruin and questions. Nobody, not even the pharaohs, were quite sure where they came from, only that the forces of the Egyptians were barely enough to drive them back. With this quest in mind, Mellart traveled to Turkey, and almost immediately, he struck a big by excavating the prehistoric Copper Age city of Hasselar. And as if this wasn't enough to make waves in the archaeological world, only two years later, Mellart uncovered a more significant find, the even older settlement of Cthulhuk. At the time, this early example of urban life, whose name I am going to avoid pronouncing as much as possible throughout this episode, was thought to be one of the oldest organized Neolithic settlements ever discovered, dating back to 7000 BC. Mellart also believed, based on one artifact in particular he discovered there, that this city may have been one of the earliest examples of mother goddess worship, but we'll come back to that in a bit. With two ancient cities under his belt, Jimmy Mellart was feeling pretty confident about his skills as an archaeologist. But, as we all know, the adventure never ends. He still hadn't found anything related to the great mystery that drew him to Turkey in the first place. Later, in that summer of 58, Mellart traveled along the Turkish coastline by train to the Aegean city of Izmir. And if you're picturing the opening to Murder on the Orient Express, which takes place in the same geographical location, then you're definitely in the right mindset here. While sitting on the train, perhaps in the cafe, car, or the lounge, Mellart took notice of a young woman in a seat not too far away from him. Jimmy described her, and I emphasize that this is his quote, as very attractive in a tardy sort of way, which is also how I request everyone refer to me on Twitter going forward. If this sounds exactly like something out of a steamy pulp noir, just you wait. Though this beautiful stranger was entrancing on her own, what caught Jimmy's eye in particular was the very unusual bangle or armband she wore around her wrist. It was gold and to a discerning historical eye, very ancient. Not something she just picked up at Tiffany's, if you catch my drift. As good of an opening line as any, Jimmy inquired about the unique piece of jewelry, and the two began, by Mellart's account anyway, a pleasant conversation. The woman introduced herself as Anna Papastrati, 
said she was Greek, and yet Mellert thought she spoke with an unusual American accent. Anna could tell that Jimmy was intrigued by her bracelet, so that's when she coyly let on that there was more where that came from. A lot more. In fact, Jimmy could see it for himself, if he wouldn't mind coming back to her place. Upon arriving in the stunningly gorgeous coastal city of Izmir, situated right on the Aegean Sea, Anna took Jimmy, who, not that it really matters, was already married, on a scenic tour across the harbor. Together, they arrived at her family's villa, the House Papastrati, located in the suburbs of Karsiaka. There, Anna showed James a collection of artifacts her family had acquired during the Turco-Greek War, around 1922, on the coast of Lake Apollyant near Dorak Village. Jimmy was speechless. The artifacts included the golden backing of a throne, which was engraved with Egyptian hieroglyphs indicating that it was given as a gift from the pharaoh Sahure, who, by the way, ruled from 2487 to 2473 BC. Among other relics were bangles of gold and silver, like the kind Anna had worn, a comb of ivory, a marble scepter, axes and daggers adorned in precious gems, and a statue of a goddess carved out of amber. Oh, and lots of pottery. In no short supply of conversation pieces, Anna admitted that the treasures were acquired through dubious means, allegedly dug up from royal tombs found in Dirac, not far from the site of the legendary city of Troy. This acquisition placed the gravesite in the territory of the Yortans, a civilization on whom very little is written. So when Melart laid eyes on an impressive silver sword bearing engravings of ships, it hit him that this was much more than a collection of plundered treasure. It meant that the Yortans, previously thought to be land dwellers, were a seafaring people. This discovery could change everything historians thought they knew of the Anatolian Peninsula, and could even present a credible theory that the Yortans might be connected to the Sea People mystery that brought Mellert to Turkey in the first place. Mellert stayed with Anna for several days, drawing up sketches and taking rubbings of the engravings on the treasures in the Papastrati collection. He also noted documents that had come with the find, indicating the positions of the entombed dead in relation to where the artifacts were discovered. At the end of the short visit, Mellert says he bid Anna a fond farewell, stepped out of the house, and noted the address, 217 Kazim Direk Street, Izmir. With that, James Mellert returned to the British Institute at Ankara to report his findings. But he and his team, which included his wife Arlette, decided to wait until they received written consent, and hopefully photographic evidence, from Anna Papastrati. Mellart wrote to her several times in the following months, to no avail. He waited. And then, in October of that year, a single letter arrived, with the return address Kazim Derek Kadesi, number 217, Karsiaka, Izmir. It said, Dear James, here is the letter you want so much. As the owner, I authorize you to publish your drawings of the Dirac objects, which you drew in our house. You always were more interested in those old things than in me. Well, there it is. Good luck. <laughs> And goodbye. Love, Anna. While the letter contained no photographs, it gave James Mellart the permission to publish his findings in the Illustrated London News. Almost immediately, the British and Turkish archaeological community was in an uproar. 
People were hungry to lay their eyes on this mysterious collection of relics, which could rewrite modern knowledge of ancient Anatolian civilization. Not long after the article was published, a team of journalists traveled to the suburbs of Izmir, eager to knock on the door of the beautiful Anna Papastrati and witness for themselves the fabulous treasures in her home. But when the press arrived at the address indicated in the letter, all they found was a commercial building, and an empty one at that. They were confused, shocked, and more than that, a little suspicious. Something was amiss here. Someone wasn't telling the truth. And much like the Sea Peoples, this Anna Papastrati, the beguiling keeper of the Dirac treasures, had vanished into the Aegean mists. That is, if there ever even was an Anna Papastrati to begin with. James Mellart, who almost overnight had become an archaeological darling for excavating two of the world's most ancient urban settlements, suddenly found himself in the middle of a controversy. When the Dirac treasures he claimed to have witnessed himself failed to turn up, Turkish authorities grew suspicious that something untoward had happened to them. For one, nobody could locate a woman named Anna Papastrati, and there were questions surrounding the legitimacy of her address. James Mellart, with the backing of his institute, swore that he had provided all of the information available to him. And so the Turkish government dug a little deeper. No pun intended. They were already deeply concerned over reports that antiques and artifacts were bleeding out of these new archaeological digs that Mellart and other Western archaeologists had overseen. Reportedly, local workmen hired for the jobs were now passing recovered artifacts onto dubious black market dealers, who were then smuggling them out of the country. The authorities set their eyes on a German antiquities dealer named Aidan Dickman, who, in parallel to James Mellart's instant success, had gone from a humble draftsman to an expert trader in antiques in a startlingly short amount of time. Much of the following comes from the meticulous reporting of journalist Susan Mazur, who has been following the Dorak affair for years. Aidan Dickman had been working in engineering, drafting blueprints for irrigation mechanics for the city of Konya in Turkey. Not the most exciting job in the world, but the work required Dickman to travel to remote areas of the country, well out of the way of the tourist beat. He often met with farmers and herdsmen who spoke of finding buried objects while clearing their fields. While the villagers had no concept of the value or importance of these objects, Dickman saw dollar signs. He began to collect these finds, preying on the rural Turks' lack of education and history. In the event when they refused to hand over artifacts to the enterprising German, Dickman would simply forge museum credentials using the skills of his trade that forced the villagers to hand over the antiques. So began a burgeoning career in the illicit trade of antiquities, both found and fabricated. And in no time at all, Dickman set his eyes on the Katuliuk and Hasselar dig sites, amassing over 10,000 British pounds in collected artifacts, such as vases, obsidian mirrors, and statuary. This sudden disappearance of the Dirac treasure, as well as how Mellart was mismanaging his own excavation sites, was enough to bring Mellart into what he described as an unsympathetic hearing, in which the government went so far as to accuse him of colluding with smugglers. It ballooned into a massive scandal, 
known in the press as the Dirac Affair. During the investigation, authorities interviewed several locals in the vicinity of Dorak Village, the supposed location of the uncovered treasures. Witnesses report seeing a thick-set Caucasian gentleman on the outskirts of town, in a location largely believed to have been excavated for artifacts. Accompanying him, they say, was a woman. This was enough for the government to conclude that Mellart was complicit in, well, something. Mellart's wife, Arlette, who worked as a secretary at the Ankara Institute, was from high Turkish society, a fact that riled up nationalists who were quick to accuse Mellart as a foreign thief. Then again, Arlette's social status may have been what spared Mellart from being permanently expelled from the country, or worse. In 1962, his authority over his dig sites in Turkey was stripped away, and Katulyuk remained untouched until the 90s. James Mellart never went on another excavation. His reputation in the archaeological community had been irrevocably tarnished. In 1966, Aidan Dickman was arrested by Turkish authorities, and while interrogating the man, they extracted some rather shocking information. Dickman had actually conspired with and paid off workers on Mellart's Katuliuk excavation, right under the archaeologist's nose. James Mellart later admitted to the reporters that he recalled an incident where three workers, including his own foreman, suddenly quit and disappeared overnight, without explanation. Mellart was later quoted as being especially contemptuous of Dickman and anybody else who profited off of historical dig sites. Though Dickman argues otherwise, Mellart denied ever meeting the thief, though he admits he was at least aware of the man. Furthermore, Mellart stood by his story that he had come into contact with the treasures of the Yortens, but could never explain how and why they went missing. Dickman himself would later be arrested once again by German authorities in the late 90s for amassing a hoard of illegally acquired art pieces totaling $60 million. It was described by police as the largest mix of stolen art and antiquities recovered since caches of Nazi loot were traced after World War II. For the most part, the British archaeological community rallied behind Mellart and painted him as a naive but honest individual who had simply found himself at the wrong place at the wrong time. This was a good man who had been done in by nefarious other individuals who had taken advantage of his findings. But as the years went on, a new picture of James Mellart began to emerge, one that complicated his place in the Dirac affair narrative. Because the Turkish government hadn't expelled him solely under the suspicion of colluding with smugglers, they had also accused Mellart of fabricating his findings. Firstly, Ketulhuyuk. Discovered at this site were murals of hunters and people venerating bulls, which pointed to a society that had revered cattle. Among the ruins, Mellard also discovered a statue of a fertility goddess, the icon of which he claims reappears in other murals and sketches he took from the site. He theorized that Ketulhuyuk was the basis of a superior mother goddess culture that spawned one of the earliest forms of organized religion, specifically the origin of Sibylle, a goddess worshipped throughout the Anatolian region around the 6th century BC. A find like this would have called into question a lot we do not know of early civilization spiritual customs. 
However, when archaeologist Ian Hodder took over the site in the late 90s and early 2000s, he found no evidence to support the theory of a mother goddess cult. In fact, there was very little in terms of religious iconography one could deduce, other than the repeated, and possibly secular, symbolism of a cattle-based culture. And though Hodder and his team hypothesized that the city was not centered around a matriarchy, all in all, Cthulhuuk might have been a fairly egalitarian society, with men and women having about equal status. Mellert's leaps of logic and his inconsistencies may have irked the Turkish government, notoriously protective of its history, especially when it came to religion. Supposedly, in the aftermath of Mellert's expulsion, he began to entertain new theories about the woman named Anna Papastrati. He now suspected that she may have been a plant or honey trap set up by the Turkish government and their crackdown on smugglers like Aidan Dickman. Some of those who have studied the Dirac affair support this argument. Others point fingers at, of course, none other than the American government. Perhaps in collaboration with the Turks, the Americans had set up a sting operation in the port of Izmir, known as the gateway for smugglers taking stolen antiquities in and out of the country. Incidentally, there was also a U.S. military base located in Izmir, which could have been utilized by the CIA. The so-called Anna Papastrati may have been a secret agent, who had used Mellart to identify the artifacts recovered by her operation, and this would explain her unusual American accent. On the other hand, if Mellart was one of the intended targets of a sting, she may have used the treasures as a form of entrapment. Granted, it's a bit of a stretch if you think of all the coincidences that would need to fall perfectly into place in order to snare Mellart. I mean, a pretty stranger with an unusual bracelet just so happens to be sitting in the same train car as a renowned archaeologist who is automatically compelled to strike up a conversation over her jewelry? I, for one, don't buy it. It is also possible, Mellor asserted, that Anna was working at the behest of criminals themselves who were trying to appraise their latest acquisition. Once again, though, this requires entirely too much precision and setup to form a credible theory. The story of the Dirac affair could have ended here, leaving us with an ambiguous but tantalizing unsolved mystery. However, as is the case with any archaeological survey, we must excavate further to get to the heart of the truth. Patricia Connor and Kenneth Pearson, two British journalists writing for London's Sunday Times, were eager to get to the bottom of the Dirac affair. In 1966, they traveled to Turkey, conducting hands-on research, which included interviewing James and Arlette Mellart and Aidan Dickman himself. Pearson and Connor published their findings in a book aptly titled The Dirac Affair. Afterwards, they gave up the case and took on different career paths, sadly throwing away their notes in the process. And picking up where they left off, Susan Mazur went in search of any lingering pieces of the Dirac affair and managed to speak with the two former journalists in 1991. They couldn't offer more than what they had already found in 66, but Mazur didn't stop there. She met with one of Mellert's associates, a Greek art dealer named Yanni Petsopoulos, who told Mazur that James Mellert staunchly believed he had witnessed the Dirac treasure, and not only that, but was mad about Anna Papastrati. 
Mazur then decided to go straight to the top in hopes of speaking with the man who oversaw Mallard's findings, Seaton Lloyd, the former director of the British Institute of Antiquities in Ankara. Mazur managed to get into contact with his niece, who had worked alongside her uncle in 1964. But the woman was reluctant to connect Mazur with Lloyd, telling her that bringing up the Dirac affair would only upset him. Lloyd died not long after. Mazur continued to try and contact those who had been involved with Mellart's findings, but her efforts were rebuffed at every turn. The professor who had redrawn the sketches for the article that broke the story about the Dirac treasure, for example, abruptly hung up on her when she attempted to contact him. It seemed that everybody still alive involved with the Dirac affair was deeply embarrassed to even touch the subject. Contrary to archaeological aspirations, this was one artifact that the British Archaeological Institute in Ankara was content to leave buried in the past. Instead, Mazur focused on the only solid proof of the Dirac treasure to come out of this strange, sordid saga, the letter supposedly sent by Anna Papastrati. Mazur found several inconsistencies, such as the actual residential address that never existed. She came to the conclusion that the letter was typed up and possibly signed by Arlette Mellert, James's wife. This was a thread that Mazur intended to pull. She began to look further into weird discrepancies in Mellart's reports and research over the years. She found that Mellart had once shown his colleagues several unpublished drawings he had taken of various frescoes and murals at the Cthulhuok site. When pressed on photographic evidence, however, Mellart said that these were all reconstructions from fragments he found that were too small to be preserved or photographed which was, needless to say, an odd explanation. Stranger still was Mellart's assertion that most of the remnants that had formed the basis of these drawings, which supported his theories on the early goddess cult, had all been lost in a fire at Arlette's father's house some odd years beforehand. But when interviewed and shown Mellart's drawings, nobody from the Cthulhuok excavation team could ever recall seeing frescoes like these at the site. Thus, the legitimacy of the Dirac treasure was called into further question. Scholars who possess what little knowledge of the Yortan people exists say that the findings Mellet reported in Anna Papastrati's collection are inconsistent with the pottery and modest artifacts that have actually been taken from the Dorak area. Proponents of the theory that Mellart had chanced upon a smuggling conspiracy hypothesized that Anna may have shown James a mix of both authentic and forged artifacts. One giveaway is the golden sheet of hieroglyphics, which may have been a deception created by the fabricators as a way to artificially date the collection for prospective buyers. This is, apparently, common practice in the underworld of antiquities forgery. Still, there are many to this day who claim that James Mellart was nothing but a scapegoat. They believe he would have no reason to lie about the Dirac find, but merely got carried away by the possibilities of authenticating a bygone civilization. If Mellart were out to fool the archaeological world, they argue, he would have chosen to mention textual and certifiable works among the Dirac horde, not jewels and valuables. Mazur and others interviewed Mellart over the course of the years and his story never changed. It appeared as if the existence of the Dirac treasure would forever remain inconclusive. Then, on July 29, 2012, James Jimmy Mellart died.
Leaving behind an impressive body of work to sift through, Mellart's surviving son enlisted the help of Eberhard Zanger, a well-respected Swiss-German geoarchaeologist in the same fields of study as the deceased Mellart. Of interest were the famous rubbings and sketches of the Cthulhuok murals. But as Zanger looked over the research and the drawings, he began to arrive at a disturbing conclusion. Far from having been lost in a fire, buried in Mellart's archives were what appeared to be prototypes and concept artwork for the so-called murals and artifacts that the archaeologist had once claimed were irretrievable. There were plenty of sketches of goddess murals and the like, yes, but they all seemed to come from one primary source, James Mellart's imagination. Zanger began to piece everything together. Mellart had come up with false evidence in order to support his theories, creating his own mythology of the Cthulhuok settlement. Instead of certifiable research, what Mellart's son and Zanger found in the archaeologist's apartment were hundreds and hundreds of forgeries. James Mellart's legacy remains one of controversy. Ironically, archaeologists are now the ones who have to sift through both fact and fiction in an attempt to discern what amount of Mellart's contributions are legitimate. The general consensus is that the Dirac affair was either a series of misidentified treasures that went missing, or a hoax perpetrated by James Mellart that went too far. If the latter is true, where might Mellart have taken inspiration for something so wild, the beautiful stranger on the train, the illicit smuggling, and the Villa Papistrati. It turns out that Mellart was close friends with another famed British archaeologist, Sir Max Edgar Lucian Malawan. In the 1930s, Max Malawan was a deeply respected archaeologist when he met a woman on a tour of an expedition site he was overseeing in Iraq. A brilliant conversationalist and writer, she had come from England and traveled to Istanbul, courtesy of the famous Orient Express. Not long after, she and Max were married, whereupon she became the Lady Malawan. However, the world at large already knew her by her more famous given name, Agatha Christie. Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. The topic for this episode was suggested by Cedric, so thanks for that. If you liked what you just heard and want to validate this relic, you can leave a four or five star rating or review in Apple Podcasts. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to be on the live recap show for the season finale of American Horror Story Apocalypse. So if you want to check that out, it's going to be on YouTube on November 17th, this Friday, around 10 p.m. You can look for the link on the relic slash my Twitter, which is at Lost Treasure Pod. Next time, the American West is a place of tall tales and myths, but none other has drawn more adventurers and claimed more lives than the legend of the lost Dutchman's mine. Is all of this just folklore or something more? The adventure continues. <laughs>